are looking at Solomon's reign. Let's uh, turn over to chapter 4, I believe, 1 Kings chapter 4. And let's uh, read the latter part of chapter 4, standing, we'll read, this, this is about Solomon's reign. This passage kind of sums up just kind of the glory of Solomon's reign to some degree, the <clears throat> his wealth and wisdom and so forth. And First Kings chapter 4, starting in verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand of the sea, alright? So what does that tell you right there? The promises is language that reminds us of God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? It's it's fulfilled. It's not it's not speaking of future. They were as many as the sand of the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Again, it's, it's not in, in a in a negative way. This is that they were satisfied. Everything was good. They had reached the pinnacle. This is really the pinnacle of Israel's uh, history. As far as the kingdom is concerned, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms and, uh, from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and the or- border of Egypt. We'll see in a little bit. I think some of what, but this is again, uh, language that, re- that was spoken of earlier when God promised that your kingdom would be, would be from the river Euphrates to the Mediterranean to Egypt. Uh, that was all stated earlier. So now we're seeing this fulfilled. And they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal. I don't know exactly how much that was. Um, It was a lot. 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle. This Again, this is for one day. 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebuck, and fatted fowl. Say, well, why do you need all that? Well, uh, remember, at, it's, by the end of all this, he's got a thousand wives, he's got, you know, who knows how many children, and all the attendants and everything else that's going on. So, uh, probably this would uh, talk about, you know, at, at a point like that. Four, verse 24, he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tipsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him, and Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Again, this is not a good thing necessarily, um, but it shows his wealth and power. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his mouth, month, excuse me, they let nothing be lacking. Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all the other men, wiser than Ethan and the Ezraite and Heman, uh, Calcal and Darda, the son of Mahol. And his fame was 
and all the surrounding nations. These were obviously men that probably at that time were considered to be some of the wisest men. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hiss of the groves out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. The people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard his wisdom. They'll be seated. Now as we read that, um, it, you say, you know, why? What's going on here? Well, again, I think it will, will bring this out, but this is certainly a foreshadowing of the great kingdom of Christ, that Christ who is the uh, wisdom of God incarnate, right? Uh, in the kingdom that he will build. And so, Solomon exceeds all the wisdom of men because, of course, Jesus Christ exceeds all the wisdom of humans being divine. And so there, there's a there's a sense which we're seeing here, uh, not just the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning Israel, but is looking forward to the day. And, of course, Jesus, remember, him, as he was speaking, uh, that um, that he far exceeds, uh, the, his kingdom will far exceed the, his glory will far exceed that of Solomon's, and so uh, there's just there's a, a catalogical thing going on here as well, and we'll get into that a little bit later on. Um, just though that we did not get to from last week in chapter three, we kind of stopped because we saw where Solomon uh, asked for wisdom. In fact, I had that on review here. Um, even though Solomon had sin in his life, yet the Lord is gracious to use him. Uh, but sin that is not dealt with will have its consequences. And so we kind of saw how he had already married uh, the daughter of Pharaoh of Egypt and that uh, that was setting him up for some problems later on. But yet the Lord is gracious to him and, and we're thankful that the Lord doesn't expect perfection or we'd all be in trouble. But we uh worshiping the Lord, however, we want to or, or practice our faith or playing church with no regard for learning what he wants is dishonoring to him, even if he might let it go and use it to some degree. And of course, this is what we were talking about in the high places. That uh, so the, one of the measurements of how committed a king was, was whether he um, got rid of the high places, the, the, the religious places that were being used to worship God, instead of worshiping God the way God had planned it. And so we, we made the point that worshiping the Lord however we want to, or practicing our faith, or playing church with no regard for learning what he actually wants is dishonoring to him, even if he might let it go and use it to some degree. And I think there's a lot of churches out there, Christians out there, and, and we say that not in a judgmental way because we know that we are certainly capable of doing the same thing. But just because... The Lord allows us to go, you know, people, churches to kind of do their thing and, and yet they really have no regard for the Word of God. It doesn't mean that we can follow suit and, and, and dishonors Him, even though it might to some degree the Lord blesses, uh, then we don't want to, we want to be careful to obey the Lord and do things the best we know from His Word. The end doesn't justify the means of Christianity. Just because something grows a church uh, does not mean that it is uh, right to be done. And, and so we kind of saw that, with, and we will see that with the kings um, uh, as we go through. Then we saw for Solomon's prayer uh, for wisdom, and it shows that he had his priorities right, and he knew what he, 
what he needed to be asking the Lord for, and the Lord blesses him for that. And what we didn't get to, though, is this uh, demonstration of his wisdom with the two prostitutes who came to them, him with uh, the baby, the one dead baby and the one live baby. But we'll see that his, his, this demonstrates his wisdom and offers a great lesson of biblical love in this account. And so let me just finish up by uh, dealing with the latter part of chapter 4 and the account of the two prostitutes. Now, um, I, I imagine we're all familiar with that, of course. They were, they were, and and again, just the fact that these prostitutes are allowed to uh, exist and nothing is done about it kind of shows that there were a lot of laws in, in the law of God that, that Israel really never was very faithful to keep often. But anyway, they come to him, and one, of course, they had two babies at the same time, which would naturally back at this time would have been a very obvious thing that would happen quite a bit. And during the night, the one mother rolled over on her baby and smothered it to death, and in the, and she wakes up, realizes what's happened, and trades babies with uh, the other woman. And uh, so when she wakes up and realizes what's happened, she you know, she sees a dead baby and realizes it's not mine, and, and you know, so she you know, rightly goes to the king in this case, or to somebody who brings her to the king and, and tells what's happened. And Solomon says, uh, divide the baby. And what, what this is, is not just a interesting story, but we're just given an example of the great wisdom of Saul. And what's so wise about this is that he, what what he does is hits home to, he just, he he's able to ascertain which mother truly loves his child, because the one mother would say, okay, yeah, divide it, which means kill the baby. In other words, all she, she didn't care about the baby, she didn't care about the other mother, uh, all she cared about was the fact that she had lost something and she was now jealous that this other woman had, so kill the baby, she was okay with that, and Solomon immediately realizes that, wait just a minute, um, uh, that can't be the real mother. And uh, so it's just a demonstration here on godly love as we move into the uh, that section in the second service in First Corinthians. One, both women claimed to love the child in a sense, but only one truly did. And so the Solomon is demonstrating the wisdom of God that God can see our hearts and He can ascertain our motives, and that that is important, and that that means something. And so we're seeing. Uh, Solomon uh, act this out, and I think in a way for us to see uh, how he points to Christ, and then he sets an example to us uh, in, in how he not only in how he prayed, but how he lives his life with eternity in mind. And uh, so, uh, if this is among other things. A, 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 a illustration or object lesson in love, then uh, love is seen in that it does good for its object. And, and we'll expand on this certainly as we go through First Corinthians 13, but the, the one woman uh, didn't care what ended up happening to that child. In a demonstration, she did not love the child. And so any any claim that we have to love anybody and, and we could use uh, our children as an example, since this is talking about specifically mother and child. If if what if what we are doing with our children is not uh, 
to uh, build them up in the faith or to bring them to Christ. Uh, you know, it's it's fine to want our children to be healthy and, and to to provide for their physical needs, but at the end of the day, if we aren't concerned about their eternal souls, I think we can rightly say that your love is not really love. It's it's a fleshly, earthly, worldly. Uh, I I don't know who Christ is love that the world can demonstrate. Uh, it's it's great. You can have a, the lost can have natural affection, great natural affection for their family. This is all part of who we are uh, as human beings. But if you don't care for their soul, if you don't want them to know Christ, there, there's a element of that love that is lacking. And so, um, we, if we love our children, we will set before them Christ. And we will seek to help them know him, to worship him. We won't raise them uh, to have designer genes or every other fad out there. And again, it's not saying that you can't have anything like that, but it will not play a big, important thing in their life. You will not allow, at least to the best of your ability, you will help them see that fads and things that the world goes after are not what's important. Not necessarily sinful. And, and, but they certainly can become sin. But, but we don't live to be seen of men. We don't live to uh, look like the world in that sense. We'll, we will have our children in church when every moment that we can. We, they won't be out on the golf course. They won't be doing other things. We cry, the children, our children need to see that Christ is the most important thing to us. And if we disregard him, we disregard the church as something I do when I feel like it, our kids see that. that if, if a child can pick up on anything, it's hypocrisy. And look, we're all... None of us are perfect, and my children certainly see a measurement, a measure of hypocrisy in me. That you know, no matter how what kind of parents you are, they're oh, you never, no one's going to do it perfectly. But they they know whether Christ really is means you love Him, and that's who you uh, want to give your life to, or it's it's all a joke, it's all a, a sham. I'm a Christian, but I'm only a Christian when it's convenient. They they pick that up. So, we'll be in church, we'll be in the Word, we won't be in Facebook and addi- or addicted to music. Again, not, not that any of that's wrong, but, but you can be addicted to it. The social media, for a lot of our younger people today, and older too, it's all about social media. It's all about, that's, that, their whole life revolves around that garbage. And it's not doing anybody any good. And yet, it's just like you, Pulling teeth to get anybody to stop and just think about that for a moment. Teach them to be submissive and not unruly. Because if you love their souls and not just their bodies, I think a lot of parents really just love their child's bodies and their personality or whatever. They, they, they enjoy their children. There's an affection for them. But they're raising them to die like a dog. And that's the issue. I and mean, we need to be careful about that. And there's too many, too much of that today. Obviously, you know, it's always been around, but we we just don't want to be guilty of that, and it's hard work. So Solomon shows us Christ, who is our King, who 
is a righteous judge, and he's, he's, he can be a righteous judge because he sees our heart. I think that's kind of what's going on here. <clears throat> Solomon's demonstrating that he has the ability to see this woman's heart and to realize what's going on. And again, this is something that we're taught in Scripture, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intention of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. So now you see it's, it's, it's really speaking about the Lord, right? But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So there's a sense in which the Lord knows our hearts and our motivations so that he will be a righteous judge. But there's a sense too, as we're talking about the word of God, that when I go to the word of God, it exposes to me my heart so that I can prepare myself for the judgment of God. When I stand before the Lord, He's given me insight into my heart, and I can I can judge my motivation. We'll deal with that as we go through chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. Because love and the motivation that 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 creates love, that makes it acceptable to the Lord, is what that chapter is all about. We'll get to that. And so I think Solomon here is is illustrating the wisdom of the Lord. Of course, Isaiah 11, 2 is speaking of the Lord Christ as he comes in incarnate form. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall fill the wicked. He, his judgment will be, will transcend the best judgment that a man can give. And this speaks to his divinity. <clears throat> First Colossians 2 3 says that in him are hidden all the uh, wisdom and knowledge of God in a bodily form. And and so God makes Solomon the wisest man without equals, I think, to so that he might be a type of Christ. <clears throat> and I like the last verse of, of this chapter, chapter of, of three. And all Israel heard of the judgment of the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. And it's a rare thing, politically speaking, for the nation's leaders to to promote and to exercise justice. It, it is not something that is all, all that uh, that happens a lot throughout human history. You've you've got some good people who try. You've got a lot who it's all about bribery. It's all about what suits me. You know, the, the more power somebody has, the more corrupt they become. And so the people are relieved in a sense to know that their king has the ability to exercise justice. And, and what a blessing that is. And, and, and we, we see what happens when all of a sudden you live in a country where uh, you have no idea whether you're gonna, there's justice going to be served or not. Because you see it not being served, right? But it, So we can't do anything necessarily about our leaders, but we know that in the end, right, the Lord will make everything right. No, no one's going to get away with anything. And so we take comfort in that. And then, of course, we, we are thankful that 
Jesus took our justice, because the last thing we really want is for God to exercise justice on sinners. But Jesus has received the justice of God as our sins were laid upon him, so that at the judgment we can receive mercy. Because the lost person they stand before the Lord, they have only justice to look forward to, and no sinner can survive the justice of God. It is a bad thing. So it's just a great thing to think about of what uh, our God is just. And yet, we have a way to for that to turn into grace and mercy. All right, so that brings us to chapter 4. Chapter 4, we have, first of all, Solomon's officials, uh, just got all his, the men that he has that he has put into place to to exercise his justice, to exercise his care of the nation, and to do his will. And so we're seeing here, uh, is Solomon setting up his kingdom? He's he's doing he's directing everything to make sure everything is done right. And again, we're reminded that our Lord's kingdom is even greater. That nothing is going to happen that's out of his control. Everything's moving along just as he wants it to move along. We also see in verse twenty. His wealth and wisdom, as we read, uh, you know, not only his ability to administrate, but also just the wealth and the wisdom that he exercised. And so, um, he's, he's installing his position, those of his choosing, but he also provides for them. In, in verse 20, they ate and drank and were happy. Verse uh, 25, um, and Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan to Beersheba, every man under his vine, every and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. So the Lord will is being uh, carried out to perfection, and all in the kingdom are being provided for. And is that not a picture of who we are, of the, the kingdom that we are in? And what we have to remember is that in, in our kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It's, it's God works and rules in our hearts. When our physical circumstances deteriorate, it's all, God is still administering just as He wants to. His will is still being done, and it's for our good, as Romans eight twenty eight says. And we still have Christ; we still have all we need. And of course, we know that eventually we, that the kingdom will turn into the perfect kingdom of the eternal state. And so, just maybe one other thing to observe here is think about the administrative order of Solomon's kingdom. We'll get to, in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, where the verse that says that uh, our God is a God of of everything should be done decently in order. God is not an author of confusion. And that specifically speaks to the church, to the services, to the organization of the church. But if if that's a principle that God is... um, not a God of confusion, but of order, then our lives should reflect that. Every every aspect of our life, we should have some measure of orderliness, and we should have direction. We don't just get up in the morning and, well, how do I feel? What do I feel like? Well, that's going to determine what I do today. No, we we, we have a, a course set out. Now, some of us are better at others than others. With that, my wife is an organizer, and she makes no bones about it. And, and she's she she has lists and, and all that, and, and I appreciate that. It's very helpful, right? But even though maybe I'm not, I don't always have a lot of lists. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm as organized as she is. I understand that my life has a purpose, 
that I, I have to plan things out. I have to set goals. I've got to think about what's going on. I, I don't just live by my emotions. I don't just live by how much money's in the bank account or anything like that. I, I the Lord has given me um, a duty, right? So all those things come into plan with a day, whether it be a day or an hour or, or the week or the month or the year to some degree. And I'm not saying that we all have to look alike in, in this, but but be careful of of just kind of doing something and not planning it out. And then, uh, you know, you, 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 you find yourself in a mess and, and things get out of control. Have some measure of organization because this is the way the Lord's kingdom works and nothing will get done. And it's, I think, amazing. A lot of people, uh, you know, if, if you had a company that really didn't have any kind of organization, didn't have foreman, uh, a president perhaps, or, you know, and, and rules and regulations and goals and all that. The, the company wouldn't even get a product out, out of the shelf, right out of the door. And how do we think that as Christians we're going to produce godliness and produce lives that, that will glorify the Lord if we don't stop and think about what we're doing? So I said, when you, you know, a couple that hasn't planned that out when when they get when they want to get married and they don't think about what, what is our goal. Why are we getting married? Um, what about children? What, why do we have children? What's the purpose of those children? What will be our way to, um, to, to raise them? If you haven't thought those questions through, you're, you're not ready to get married. And then you say, well, I might, all of us are like that. I don't know. Uh, I think we, I think Sam and I were pretty good about that. I mean, I, we, we could have a lot of room for improvement, but, I mean, does that not make sense? You know, and I think a lot of people just well, I fall in love, we get married, and all of a sudden we're pregnant. Now what do we do? You know, it's, it's like we're, we're, it's everything's reactive. And, and it shouldn't be that way. I mean, obviously the Lord sends us curveballs and, and things like that, but we should have some direction in our life. And you say, well, you know, is that really in the text? Well, I think that if, if, we, if we're seeing the, the glory of Christ's kingdom and how he rules, then those are things that we are to reflect in our lives as well. And again, as we'll see in the New Testament, some of those things are, are brought out. So that's kind of chapter 4. Chapter 5, we have the preparations for building the temple. David had probably most of the materials that he had gathered together was the gold and some of that kind of thing. Much of the wood still had to be sawn out of Lebanon. The stones were still in the quarry, had to be cut out, at, you know, in the quarry. So David didn't get like everything together, but he probably got the gold, the utensils, and things like that. You know, we're not really told exactly what he laid aside, but Solomon in chapter five uh, speaks with Hiram uh, and, and uh, you know, make sure they had the, the, the cedar that they needed from the cedars of Lebanon, the, the forest uh, um, cedar forest in Lebanon, and, and he. It's, again, it shows his organization as he gets everything together for the building of this temple for the Lord. And we'll notice here, ne- I think next week, that uh, it'll take Solomon seven years to build the temple. It'll take him 13 years to build his house. And... Some have tried to justify that because, uh, you know, well, David already had some material, you know, so he just kind of could throw that up where, he, where his palace. 
you know, he, he had to do that from scratch. I, I kind of think that's, that's, that's probably, uh, stretching things. I think because, again, it, 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 I think it's the last verse of chapter six. Is it, let me make sure. Yeah. Tells us that he was seven years in building the temple. The first verse of chapter seven, he was 13 years building his house. You, you can't help but see a little bit of a, uh, a contrast there. The Solomon, the, the Lord is perhaps telling us that Solomon and all his glory here, he had some problems. He, he spent more time building his house with his thousand wives, where you got to build a pretty big house. Um, then he did the Lord's house, and perhaps there's a there's a problem there that I, again it's it's probably if nothing else it's a hint of problems to come, but I'll throw that out there, and I guess you can make out of it what you want to. But uh, here again in chapter five we we have uh, the, the organization getting ready to build the temple, and then uh, then chapter six we'll see him actually uh, building. Uh, the temple and so forth and, the, and the, all the materials furnishings that he, uh, that go into it. But you have to figure out, okay, why was this stuff recorded? The things that we're studying here. And, and again, we have to be careful we don't miss the point because it's easy to get distracted in all the interesting stories or, or some people might look at it and just be completely bored by it all. But if we're looking to see Christ, if we're looking to see what is going, what's the overall picture? We can, we can understand, uh, the, uh, what, what, what's going on here. In fact, we were in our study, uh, on, uh, Jeff's, uh, Bible study, we're going through the Psalms and, and he said something I've said before. I don't know if y'all caught this or not, but when we study the things that, we study the, the building of the temple, we're studying our history. Israel's history is our history. It's not because we're Jews. But because that is how the Lord is going to bring the Messiah into the world so that we can be saved. So we have a vested interest in it. I hope we do. If you, if you have a vested interest in Christ, you should have a vested interest in the redemptive story of the Old Testament of how the Lord brought it all together, right? And of course the, the temple, as we've seen with the tabernacle, it is full of teachings of Jesus Christ, and, and I think that's why we find the reign of Solomon of interest because there's there's things about Christ there. Uh, we don't want to miss the point. I was reading uh, uh, recently about a uh, years ago somebody had written into Tide the company Procter and Gamble, whoever it is that makes Tide, and uh, they they had a, a cute little story. They thought that the people at Tide would would uh, appreciate. And it says that, uh, he, you know, we, my wife and I heard that Eskimos, uh, bathed in tide. So we went up north to see them and whether it was true. And we found out, yes, they did indeed bathe in tide because it was too cold to bathe out tide. All right. So it was a, you know, a little pun. They thought it was cute. And they get a letter back from Tide, some some woman that was uh, you know involved in I guess PR or whatever, and she said, "Well, we appreciate your interest and support of Tide. We want to make it clear that we don't believe you should be bathed in Tide at all. It's not a good thing to do." And it's like it just went right over at you. <laughs> now it was just a joke. We aren't actually doing it, right. 
Well, you know, we, we, I think we can study the Bible that way. I think a lot of times that happens, right? We, we read it, we read stories, but we're not putting the whole thing together of what's going on, right? And so, one of the first things we notice is that we, as I've already pointed out to you, what we see in these chapters is that we have the fulfillment of the land promises made to Israel, starting with Abraham and later with Moses. Uh, we, we have very definite statements here that everything that was promised to Moses concerning the land, Israel had. Nothing waiting in the future. Everything is there. And uh, just a few verses that kind of show some of this. In Exodus 23, uh, 31, the Lord said, And I will set your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, the Mediterranean, and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. So, again, any attempt to say, well, Israel's still waiting for the land promises to be fulfilled. And I've heard lots of people say that. You know, I, I grew up in that whole mentality that, well, Israel still hasn't, none of the promises have been fulfilled in Israel. And I'm thinking, what? What, what did we just read here? And, and we'll, we'll read, it, we'll read it again in just a moment, but we, we saw this, uh, Joshua 21, remember? Thus the Lord said to Israel, all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hand. Not one word of all that the good promises the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And certainly in Solomon's day, the final, uh, you know, the, 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 the uh, he, his borders extended to what we read there in Exodus as well. Um, and then later on here in chapter 8 of 1 Kings, we'll read this again. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise which he spoke by Moses his servant. So the land promises that were given to Abraham to to Israel are fulfilled. And what was the purpose of the land promises? It gave Israel a place to a a, a possession. It was all a type of our possession, yes, but our, our, our inheritance. But it was a place where there could be a law and a covenant uh, of people so that the Messiah could come and do his redemptive work. And that's the purpose of the land promises. Uh, and, and then once that was fulfilled, uh, this no longer needed anymore. And uh, so, you know, it just very clearly says that, that the, the promises, those promises were for the Old Testament Israel and they are, have been fulfilled. In, in those things. And so, um, you think about, um, these verses, um, like, let, let, think of, I think there's, there's a lot of places we go to in the New Testament that kind of shows, um, this as well, but, John 14, 2, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Peace I live with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world 
gifts do I give to you? Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The fulfillment of these land promises, and of course, that, that were ultimately fulfilled in the kingdom, uh, Christ, uh, they, they point to Christ in, in his kingdom. And so what do you have here? You have a people uh, and a place in peace. Just like you have up here in First Kings, you have a, the people that the promises, uh, they have peace all around them, right? They have a people, a place, and peace. And Jesus says, I have come to give you a place in glory and, and peace in your heart and peace with God. And, of course, he's talking to the people that the Father had given him. Uh, so that's the fulfillment of it. And, we're, and, and the kingdom has begun, and the kingdom uh, will ultimately be fulfilled in the eternal state. And this is seen again, if you think about Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, when we talked about the Davidic covenant. Notice here what it says, though. You see the connection. Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 10. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall affect them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies, moreover the Lord declares to you, the Lord will give you, make you a house. And so, uh, that was fulfilled in Solomon, the place, uh, was given, the, the, all the place with all the peace that he had been promising them, they had rest from all their enemies. And so the, God is very careful to point out that these conditions have been made have been met. They use that same language, people, place, uh, and so forth. So it, it, it's it's now obviously then those promises were not the end in themselves. The, the ultimate goal of, of of Israel being formed as a nation and giving that the inheritance of, of the land is not the point. It's the process where God's people shall receive. Uh, the meek shall inherit the earth. It's a, it's looking forward to, like Abraham looked forward to a city not made with hands. The, the, Hebrews 11, none of them received the promise. They, they received the, the Abrahamic promises, land promises, the Mosaic land promises, but they all died knowing that there was still something coming, that that, that really wasn't the, the point of all this. And I don't think it's difficult to see then, as you think about these this promise of the kingdom and this promise of David that Solomon, one coming after you, shall have this glorious kingdom where there will be rest, that clearly Solomon isn't really the fulfillment of that. It's going to be Christ. He's going to set up a kingdom, right? And what happened? John the Baptist and Jesus came, and they kept saying, repent for the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom that the Jews looked for in the Old Testament over and over again that the prophets prophesied about, Jesus says, it is here. It's at hand. He told Nicodemus, you want to get into the kingdom. And again, there's there's not like a bunch of kingdoms out there. There's only one kingdom that was prophesied. It was the kingdom where Jesus, who is the king, shall set up, right? And he says to Nicodemus, if you want to enter this kingdom, uh, being a Jew is not going to get it done. You got to be born again. And that's how you enter the kingdom. The kingdom is within you, right? And we look forward to the time when the kingdom is universal and the new heavens and the new earth. But we are 
living at Pentecost, the kingdom began. The, the king, there's only one kingdom that was ever, I think, pointed to in the Old Testament. And so we, uh, we I think we just see some of the uh, connections here in, in these verses that uh, both in Joshua and in First Kings that make it very clear that the land promises given to the Jews were given were fulfilled. They were filled in Solomon's day. They were filled to 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 basically in Joshua's day, but ultimately, obviously, to in its fullest way with uh, Solomon. And that uh, you say, well, what didn't? What about the fact that when, it, 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 when the Jews were carried off into captivity, uh, the prophet said that I will gather you back into the land and we'll set up a kingdom. Well, right, that was true, but that has nothing to do with the land promises. That was being regathered. And it, it, but you notice the universality of the promise of, of that I will gather all the nations. If we didn't even get to, to that, we'll get to that a little bit more next week. That, that that looks forward to the kingdom, where yeah, there was a sense in which there were some Jews that did come back, obviously to and build up. Uh, you know, under Zerubbabel, they built, they they came back from uh, captivity. They built the temple. They started their nation again, as it were. Although it wasn't a that they weren't autonomous by any stretch, but that did happen, uh, and, and it happened so that uh, Christ could set up the kingdom when He came, uh, you know, when He came to Earth to set up the kingdom. So, and then and the, the, the nations are gathered into the kingdom as we preach the gospel, and so that the, the Old Testament promises of that day of that kingdom coming is a promise when Christ would come and He would set up the kingdom. As he told his disciples to go into all the nations and preach the gospel and do what? Make disciples. What happens? You become a disciple. Well, you're regenerated. You're born again and you are brought into the kingdom. You, you see the kingdom. You become part of the kingdom. And so we go into all the world and we're bringing people into the kingdom of God, uh, from, from not just Jew, but Gentile as well. And then someday our king will come back. He will, as we'll see when we get to 1 Corinthians 15, a lot of things about the kingdom there. Uh, the kingdom will be in its final state, and he will turn it over to the Father, and God will be uh, all in all. All right? So just all sorts of things there. But uh, any questions or comments quickly before we uh, close? Father, we thank you for your love to us this day, and thank you for just the different ways you uh, explain to us Christ and your redemptive plan. and. Lord, to see that there's a connection all the way from Genesis to Revelation, that there's a, a point being driven home. There, there's things that are being done in history, in uh, the way God is working in this world, that is all leading us to a glorious end. We will be with uh, Christ someday in glory. And so we, we pray that you might give us insight and give us faith to believe these things and to build our lives upon them in Jesus' name.